Thank you all for joining with us. One of the best parts of worship is not just what the sound that's produced here, it's the sound that's produced here. And I'm so encouraged and blessed as I hear your voices sing as one. This morning, I wanted to start with this. Have you ever been asked uh, the question, what is the most embarrassing moment of your life? I was asked that this week by one of our own, and uh, I will spare you all the answer to that because uh, you do not want to hear it. Uh, but many of the lesser embarrassments in my life have had to do with me saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, or either that or doing something very clumsy. I'm a very clumsy person. That's why I was never very good at sports. And uh, a clumsy, stupid move ends up hurting myself or hurting someone else. There was this one time when I was a junior high youth pastor back at Cornerstone Bible Church, I think I have a picture of it right there, a little blurry, but you get the idea, this castle church in Glendora, and I, I had the youth group, the junior high youth group, and we were playing out in the back parking lot a game, it's some game where you'd throw a ball back and forth like every other game, and uh, I'm actually there playing the game with the kids, and I was getting maybe a little too much into it, the ball comes my way, and I turn around and slam into a junior high student that was right behind me, he goes flying. And it was one of those moments, you know, where time slows down and you hear the sound of his head making contact with the pavement reverberating in your mind and you think, this is going to be bad. But don't worry, after a few hours in the emergency room, I was just fine. So we've all had embarrassing moments, right? And, and after a period of time, we realize that everyone has embarrassing moments. You shake them off and you get on with your life. It's just the way it is. But what about shameful moments? Those are a little bit harder to shake off, aren't they? I will never forget sitting there with everybody in the congregation and we were looking up at the man on the stage, and he happened to be my youth pastor, and he was explaining to all of us why he was resigning his position. Oh my gosh. That was the morning. That was the morning when my greatest fear switched from things like dying and things like public speaking to enduring the agony of shame, of getting up in public and explaining a moral failure. In fact, to this day, to, to this day, that's, that's my greatest fear. What does that have to do with Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32? Well, it has a lot to do with it, as we will see looking at our passage this morning. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? We stand out of respect. We stand recognizing that this has not only meaning for our lives, but this is God's holy word and it is authoritative. So the thing that it has to say, we need to listen to and align ourselves with it. And that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. It's Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. It says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, maybe you're like me and you've maybe heard a message or two or someone explain something of the crucifixion. Maybe you heard a pastor, maybe you've heard a teacher, and you've learned something of the size of the nails and, and where they were placed. And they were placed in such a way not only to secure the, the victim to the beams, but they would actually rub up against nerve endings and just send shooting blasts of pain to the brain. And you've learned about the position that those who were crucified were in and how their arms stretched out and that in conjunction with the force of gravity that prevented them from taking in oxygen. They couldn't breathe. And so that, that was actually a problem because the Romans, they wanted to make sure that crucifixion lasted a while, that, that the victims didn't die right away, and so they would bend the knees of those who were crucified so they could actually pull up with their arms and press up with their legs to get a breath of air. And of course, as they would do so, their already lacerated backs would rub up against the splintery wood. We could go on and on about the details. I remember listening to one youth pastor who just went into this at a youth retreat into such detail and with such a level of emotion that every single eye in the room was just weeping, weeping. The Roman statesman, philosopher Cicero, he wrote that crucifixion was the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. The Romans wanted to make sure that their enemies paid dearly for their sins, that everyone would know the price of breaking their law or challenging the authority of Caesar. And that's why crucifixions were public. That's why they were often done out on the busy roadways. So everyone would see. One commentator notes that by the time of Jesus, there were somewhere around 30,000 crucifixions that were performed by the Romans in Israel alone. And then when the temple fell in 70 AD, 
that there were so many crucifixions that were taking place that there was a lumber shortage. Hmm. This is an awful, stomach-turning form of execution. And when we think about it, we're, we're disgusted. We should be. We're revolted. We're led to marvel that Jesus would willingly march on to this end. Wow. For us? Either he was absolutely out of his mind, or perhaps he was exactly who he claimed to be. But the interesting thing here in Mark's gospel is that Mark doesn't go into any of these details, does he? He doesn't spend any time describing how awful and how agonizingly painful the physical aspect of crucifixion was for Jesus. He doesn't do that. Why is that? I think part in part because he just didn't have to. Everyone was familiar with crucifixion. You couldn't avoid it. They had firsthand knowledge of it, and they would have seen it in living color every time they went in and out of a major city. Not only did they see it, they would have, they would have smelled it. I don't think it took too much of a breeze to transmit that gag-inducing waft of putrefying stench. Mark didn't have to describe the horrors of the cross. Everyone was intimately familiar with it. But I think there's another reason that he doesn't go into those details. I think that's because there is perhaps an even greater, more horrific element of Christ's suffering that we should observe. I think Mark wants us to see the shame. So let's take a look at the shame of the cross. Pilate gave in to the crowd, right? If you were here last week, you remember that. He probably thought he had no choice. Either he was going to let go of his principles and, and, and just make everybody happy, or he was going to risk a meltdown during the most heavily populated time in the city of Jerusalem and maybe say goodbye to his career along with it. So he releases the people's choice. He releases Barabbas when they ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus, and he transfers Jesus over to his soldiers to be scourged. In a couple of the other Gospels, they reveal that Paul, Pilate tried even, even then to push back again on the, on, on the Jewish leaders. You know, you know what? Okay, okay. You, you, want, you want Barabbas instead? You want Jesus instead? Well, you take Jesus, and you do the beating. You do the crucifying, but the Jewish leaders would have None of it. And we don't know if that was because Pilate was a little superstitious because of his wife's dream, maybe. Or maybe it was just he, had a, he actually had a little bit of ethics. <laughs> we don't know. But he didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus' death. But the, but the Jewish religious leaders, they'd have nothing of it. And they were insistent that the Romans take care of this. They actually threatened Pilate. They threatened him in John 19, 12 by saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Their picture of his job just disappearing right there. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And I don't think Pilate liked being backed into a corner. I don't think he liked that one bit. And I think that's partly the reasons that he and his soldiers made such a big deal of mocking Jesus. If they were going to make him kill Jesus, if I'm going to have to do the dirty work here, then I'm going to make sure with all of my power to make you guys look like idiots. This is what Rome thinks of your king. 
And they hated Jesus so much that it didn't even seem to bother them. (laughs) They even went so far as to pathetically say, you know what? He's not our king. Caesar is our king. John 19 records this. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And that's where these religious leaders show their true colors here. Though they wanted more than anything else to be seen as the religious elites, to be seen as God's people here. We are the ones who God truly looks upon favorably. But you know what? That didn't matter in that moment. We'll we'll bend the knee to a false god, to the pagan emperor of Rome, Whereas in the wilderness, Jesus refused to bow down for the devil. The devil said, you, you, uh, I'll let you gain the whole world here, just bow down to me. Whereas Jesus refused to bow down, these men voluntarily bowed the knee to a servant of Satan to remove Jesus from the world. And so the mocking began. Mark 15, 16 says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. A battalion or or cohort, that is a tenth of a legion. And a legion is about 6,000 people. So there were about 600 men, 600 men surrounding Jesus in the courtyard to watch the show. (laughs) They dress him up as a derelict would-be king. Verse 17 says, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Now that cloak, the purple cloak, it was probably just a a ratty old uh, piece of their uniforms. Matthew actually says it, it was scarlet. Well, maybe from, from, from being out in the sun, it had become discolored, and it was just old. It was a throwaway garment, maybe something used to clean up things. And they put that on Jesus. And then they fashioned something that looks like the wreath that would be upon Caesar's head, only this wreath is out of thorns, sharp thorns, which would slice into his skin as they pressed it on his head. That in and of itself was a mockery. Some king this is, right? But then they take it a step further, and they begin to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and they were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. This is how we treat Jewish kings. They saluted. They bowed. They beat. They spit. Though he was everything, they treated him like he was nothing. The author of Philippians writes, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. There's some powerful irony going on here. Not just a king, but the king of all kings, 
the Almighty One, the all-powerful, all-magnificent Creator Himself is being mocked and ridiculed as the most pathetic excuse for a king that ever lived. And yet, this is all happening as Jesus said it would. Remember what he told his disciples in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Not only did Jesus predict it, but Isaiah predicted it. 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What is the most shameful moment that you have experienced in your life? What kind of mockery have you endured? Maybe it was justified, maybe it was unjustified. But I have a feeling that as bad as it may have been, it doesn't come close to the inglorious abuse of the perfect Son of God. And He endured that for you and for me. Isaiah writes, For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. He Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. As the soldiers looked at the pathetic wretch before them, they mocked, they ridiculed, they beat, they spit, having no idea that every droplet of saliva he accepted and, and every bruise-inducing blow that he received, every wildly undeserving insult that he silently endured, he took on their behalf. The mockery that they made was precisely what they deserved. What we deserved. They removed the cloak. They led him down the road, the Via Dolorosa, the, the sorrowful way, the way of suffering. And they brought him out to crucify him. And on his shoulders was the crossbeam, right, on which he would die. John 19, it tells us he carried it for a while, a little while, but at some point he was just too tired, too weak, too, his injuries were too severe, he had lost too much blood. And so Mark tells us that the soldiers, they pull a man from the crowd, an out-of-towner who had traveled up from uh, the, the North African coast, he probably came to celebrate the Passover. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We'll mention more about Simon in just a moment. 
And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, it was a, a common practice for kind-hearted Jews to, to care for those who were ende- enduring a tremendous amount of pain, and they would give them something to numb the pain. Proverbs 31.6 says, "'Give strong drink to the one who is perishing.'" and wine to those in bitter distress. Now, seeing how myrrh was, it was used as an anointing oil, yes, and it was also used as perfume, yes, but it was also a narcotic. (laughs) And it seems to be that that's exactly what they were doing here. They're mixing the narcotic with the wine to lessen his pain. This is a kindness that was offered to Jesus, and yet he refuses it. According to Matthew, he took one taste and he turns it down. The pain, the shame, the horror, God's wrath being put upon him was something that he was determined to endure as much as was humanly possible. He would endure the full and glorious experience on our behalf. This, is, this was happening exactly as the scripture had foretold it to the last detail. Even the soldiers tearing his clothing was a fulfillment of scripture, Psalm 22. The dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them from my clothing. They cast lots. Mark 15, 25 tells us it was the third hour that he was crucified. The third hour, that would have been 9 a.m. according to how the, the Jews kept time. All of this was happening very, very fast, right? It was just the night before, late in the, or early in the morning, actually. He's praying in the garden. They arrest him. And then we have the trials taking place. Boom, 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 boom. And here he is, 9 a.m. And all of this is taking place so that the spotless once and for all, atoning Lamb of God could breathe his last at the exact same time that the Passover lambs were sacrificed that afternoon. As he was crucified, Jesus would have been laid out flat on the ground, stretched out on top of the wood beams. Once he was fixed to it, he, along with the whole apparatus, would have been slowly hoisted up into place until it slid very, very quickly down a pre-dug hole, violently jerking his impaled body. Again, Mark doesn't give us details. It's like he doesn't doesn't even want us to go there into the horror of the, the physical suffering. Instead, he continues to describe how Jesus was treated like a laughingstock. Those who were crucified along or, uh, in that day, char- their charges were posted up above their heads. The, the Romans wanted everyone to know the crimes of these people so as to say, hey, this same fate could be yours, just do these things. In Jesus' case, the inscription was a mockery both to him and to the Jewish people, especially Jewish religious leaders, as it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, according to John 19.20. The irony, of course, is that every word of that was actually true. He was their king. He was the rightful king. He he was the one who had come for them on their behalf, and yet they rejected him. 
as he hung there between the two soldiers. Maybe they were the, the, the colleagues, fellow insurrectionists with Barabbas. Mark doesn't tell us, so it must not really matter. What does matter, though, is the fact that as Jesus is hanging there with them, these criminals fulfill another, pro- another prophecy. Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In Mark 15, 32, we read that, that those criminals also were hurling insults at him. The death that he was dying would pay for the crimes of at least one of them. Remember, there's one criminal who eventually realizes, I think I know who this man is. He says, would you remember me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 29 says, those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the minds of so many people, Jesus was just a joke. It's just a, a joke. There may have been a time when they were curious, where they, they wanted to know, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? He was the flavor of the week. But now, hanging there in abject shame, it was obvious he's nothing more than a sham. Nothing more than a sham. And they shouted, save yourself. Come down from the cross. It says, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who had betrayed their love for God. With their own mouths, they confessed allegiance to the servant of of darkness. They join in in the mockery. And this was the moment they had been waiting for all along. Three years they had been waiting for this moment. It was glorious. This was victory. They were lapping it up like a a predator drinking the blood of its prey. This was great. Never mind the miracles which he performed earlier. Show us, Jesus, show us that you are powerful enough to rescue yourself, and then we'll believe. We swear it. We'll believe you. But they wouldn't believe, would they? They wouldn't believe. Even after what would happen three days later, they still didn't believe. And of course, we've read the rest of the story. We know that he was perfectly capable of saving himself. And yet that was something he couldn't do. Remember how he told Peter, shall I I drink the cup? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? No, I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to do what I came to do. Jesus enduring the pain. Jesus enduring the agony. Jesus experienced the torment and the ridicule, the full wrath of God we deserve for our rebellion against him. It was crucial to his fulfillment of his calling. This wasn't weakness. This wasn't helplessness. This wasn't hoisting the white flag and finally surrendering to the superior religious leaders. No, this was faithfulness. This was obedience. The inglorious suffering of Christ was a glorious act of worship to the Father. 
It was an all-powerful display of God's love. His love for us that while we were still completely lost in our sin, it was the single greatest act of strength in the history of the universe. And this was God's great plan from the beginning, that Jesus would endure the shame of the cross in a courageous act of obedience to the Father and victoriously secure for us the path and fling wide open the gate so that guilty sinners could step into freedom as they are declared not guilty. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. I mentioned I'd come back to Simon. It's likely, it's possible that she, he didn't know who Jesus was. Coming, coming up from, from north, the North African coast, and, and maybe there for the Passover, we don't know. But then all of a sudden just jerked out of the crowd and said, you're going to carry this element of execution here. Simon, did you notice in our passage that Mark says, Simon of Cyrene, then he tells us who his kids are. Why does that matter to us? Who cares about Alexander? Who cares about Rufus? Well, we think that these two men, that these two sons were mentioned because everyone who was going to receive this letter of Mark, this gospel, they already knew who these guys were. Okay, so maybe they were familiar. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul mentions Rufus in the book of Romans. And he mentions Rufus' mother, which would have been Simon's wife. And he leads us to believe that this whole family came to know, love, and trust Jesus. They became members of the family that Jesus came to create. The shame that he endured was for them. We already mentioned one of the mocking thieves. He has a change of heart. Begging Jesus, remember me, Jesus. When you, when you go into your kingdom, and Jesus made it clear that that very day, they would be together in paradise. Even though this man could do nothing, absolutely nothing, to earn his way into heaven. And Jesus promises him, today you'll be with me. The shame that Jesus endured was for that guy. Matthew tells us one of the soldiers was there. And looking up at the cross, seeing Jesus breathe his last, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. The shame that Jesus endured and the way that he endured it was for the benefit of that centurion. Later on, hundreds, thousands would come to admit that they themselves were guilty of Jesus' death. Many of them were the, the very same ones who said, His blood be on us, 
His blood be on us and on our children. But they came to realize that by placing their trust in him, his, his sin-atoning, guilt-removing blood could be upon them and wash over them and make them part of Christ's forever family. The shame that Jesus endured was for the guilty crowd. Acts 6, it tells us that there were even some priests, even some priests who came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrificial lamb sent to take away the sins of the world. The shame that Jesus endured was even for them. What about you? Has the shame of Jesus Christ, the shame that he endured on the cross, and the victory over sin and death that he has secured, has that been applied to your life? If it hasn't, let this be the day that changes everything. Let this be the day that, that just like the centurion, your eyes look up to Jesus and you say, truly, this man was the Son of God. Today is the day that you can be saved. He did the work. He endured your shame. He prepared the ultimate gift for you. Your part is just to receive it. To receive it by acknowledging your need, acknowledging your sin, and trusting that Jesus Christ paid for it in full on the cross. Would you do that now? In the quiet of your hearts, just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I deserve the shame. I, and I, I deserve the suffering that you took in my place. Thank you. That's all I can do is thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior from this day forward. And if that's you, and maybe you've crossed the line of faith just right now, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a few weeks before that, and you have passed from darkness into the light, let me encourage you, tell someone about it. Everyone these days wants to make faith in Jesus something that's just a private thing. It's just between you and God. It was never meant to be that. It was meant to be a public thing. And that's why in a couple of weeks, on Halloween morning, one of the darkest days of the year, we are going to take time for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to go public with their faith, hopefully right out here in the courtyard, and let their fellow believers know that they are part of Jesus' family through baptism. 
And if you want to be a part of that, come find me after the service, go to the Welcome Center after the service, go to, go to anybody after the service and let them know that you're interested and they will help you know uh, where to go and what to do and we will make you part of that celebration. Jesus endured your shame so that you might take part in his glory. My prayer, though, and my expectation, though, is that many of us in this room and many of us online who are, who are listening to this, watching this, that we have already placed our trust in Jesus Christ. The shame that he endured, we need to know, is shame that is coming our way. It's coming our way. A.W. Tozer once wrote, To be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. And that is a very perceptive statement. Those who trust in Christ, those who identify with Jesus, they take up the shame of his cross, just like Simon did, as they walk through life in this world. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. Those who haven't embraced it, they don't get it. And they won't get you. Like, uh, like those kids that C.S. Lewis wrote about, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. They, they walk through this wardrobe and their eyes are opened to the reality of Narnia. In the same way, those who have trusted in Jesus, they've had their eyes opened to life as it really is. And as they fill their minds with, with God's word, they begin to see things, see things differently. They walk around this world and they see things with a different perspective. All of a sudden, things are starting to line up. Things are starting to make sense here. And that's a perspective that the unbelieving world doesn't have. They not only don't understand it, they are diametrically opposed to it. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you were in Jesus, if you were in Christ, you're no longer of this world. You've been called out of darkness and you've been called into his light. Just like 1 Peter tells us, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that is an awesome thing. That is a beautiful thing. You've been called out of darkness, but with it comes a certain undeserved shame. And just as Jesus was, you and I, can expect, and we know we've been comfortable for a very long time in our world. It's been a safe place for Christians, but you and I can expect to be mocked and ridiculed and treated with a similar shame. We walk an inglorious road, but we must never forget that that road ends in glory. Amen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. My friends, we are living in a time where it is very, very tempting, increasingly tempting, to take the basket and put it over the light. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To God be the glory. Amen? That's what we're here for. That's what our lives are all about. And may we, like Paul, even come to the point of desiring to share in his sufferings. Because to share in his sufferings is to be aligned with him and gives us assurance that we will be there with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We must be a crazy people to look at a passage like this, a, a horrible passage, terrible the greatest injustice that has ever been done, the greatest sin ever committed, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. And yet, Lord, because we know what that means and because we know what it has accomplished, we know what that does for us and how it changes everything. The blinders fall off. The darkness fades away. We step into the light and now know that our inheritance has been secured, that we are part of your forever family, that even though we're enduring light momentary affliction in this life, Lord, that there is glory on the horizon. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to march forward with resolve, to run with perseverance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is even now set down at the right hand of God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' holy name, and everyone says, amen. amen.